Hi, I'm Alex Covell, and here's creative person Miley Durham IV. It doesn't happen in every city. You, you may think it does. You may think, oh yeah, you know, every city has this great thriving local music scene. But if the people don't get behind it, there's no scene. Hey everyone, welcome to Our Lab DC's Culture on Top podcast, a show where we speak with people who lead creative inspired lives and share what it means to live creatively. Today's episode features Miley Durham IV, a veteran of the DC music scene, a producer, and multi-talented musician who has a prolific range of work, ranging from projects in the realms of electronic, funk, punk, jazz, and occasionally moonlighting as a soul-inspired DJ under the alter ego of Honest Lee. Among these projects, his main musical endeavors are drumming for the jazz funk project Three Man Soul Machine featuring fellow artists Carter Stevens on organ and Thievery Corporation veteran Frank Mitchell Jr. on saxophone, as well as acting as executive director of his own music label, Grow Room Productions, which has been helping independent musicians get their work out there since its start in 2001. And I just want to say something specific about this before we start. I... I was really surprised to find out about Lee and his existence and also learn that there was this independent label that had been around for musicians in DC for almost the past 20 years. It's something that I, you know, wish I had known earlier. Um, and more so as I dug into this guy and his body of work, I was pretty, pretty astounded by just the range of projects he, he'd put himself into. Um, really kind of like surprisingly unassuming dude when you meet him but he's just got so much so much creative work out there right now and he just keeps going um so yeah people should know about him and should check him out anyway here is miley durham the fourth so where, where are you from originally well i was born in denver colorado oh. um but my parents moved to hyattsville maryland um when i was like two and a half I, I feel like I'm from Hyattsville, though, you know. Grew up there, I went to school, Hyattsville Elementary, Hyattsville Middle School. Uh, went to Eleanor Roosevelt and graduated from Northwestern, which is in Hyattsville. And, you know, like, I just feel like I'm there. I've, I've lived in various other places in Maryland um, and D.C., but I've just, like, I don't know, I always call Hyattsville my home, and now I live there. Oh, there now too. So. so it must be comfortable then. You must that must like be a fitting environment for what you Very. need. You know? yeah. <laughs> Very comfortable. Sometimes too comfortable, but yeah. You know. <laughs> how does that? How is that different than DC? By the way, I mean, what's the, what's the vibe? What's it like growing up there? Is it? I mean, I guess you wouldn't know what it'll be like growing up as a right. In DC. I kind of always I, I I always think of that, but like a lot of my friends that grew up in Hyattsville and in PG County, especially. Um, we always say like we don't know how it would be to grow up anywhere else but we just know that from growing up there it's just incredibly diverse like there's people from all over the world uh, the that area pg county has some of the highest um transplants from from africa from west africa oh wow like one of the biggest um um populations of people that live you know Anywhere in the country. Yeah, anywhere, anywhere in the country. Yeah. Um, and, you know, we have a lot of Latino Americans and um, that are there. I mean, there's like Langley Park is just all Latino shops, everything you would want. And then you have, you have 
various Asian uh, immigrants, you know, and people just like, it seems like everyone just kind of like came up living there, coexisting with people. And, you know, our schools were extremely diverse as well. And like, you know, so we just feel like lucky to have grow up in that sort of atmosphere. But at the same time, we know that it, not everyone gets this, you know, so. Yeah, especially not in like a balanced way. That's yeah. a, it uh, sounds like it was probably a, a happy, more often happy upbringing in that environment than negative, but maybe not. I don't know. Absolutely not. Yeah. I mean, there's there's very few. I mean, I remember, you know, some instances of people, um, you know, getting in fights and stuff in elementary school or middle school, but I don't think any of it was ever because anything racial or anything or like, you know, people really getting on each other because they were different or anything. Or I just, just think teenagers normal. being yeah, teenagers exactly, yeah. being kids. Just bullies or people that, you know, needed to act out on their aggression or whatever, you know. Were there opportunities because of that diversity that helped you kind of lean into the work you're doing now, like music and art or anything? Do you think that was... Absolutely. I think Hyattsville especially and the neighboring neighborhoods of Tacoma Park and Brentwood, Mount Rainier. Like, I grew up in that neighborhood, had a lot of friends from those spots, and, like, that's very art, arts-focused, you know? Like, there's uh, Joe's Movement Emporium, which is a great community space, and they they do everything from, like, drum class dance to, to dances and all these different kinds of uh, art. And they, when I was in high school, there was also a venue for bands to play, after hours so uh, that's cool we let, we let the local kids come through yeah, and, yeah. so we yeah. play you know all ages shows there and uh, yeah it was just like a cool little spot and welcoming to everybody and they're still there they moved into a better bigger um, facility and I just heard actually Ciro Baptista who is this great uh, percussionist from Brazil I want to say he's coming through and he's hosting a um Rehearsal is what he calls it, but it's an open invitation to anybody to come play. Oh, wow. And then if you come to that and play on that rehearsal, he's doing a performance at the University of Maryland, and you're, you he's, he's invited to play it. That's play very yeah. cool. Yeah, he's this like world renowned percussionist. And is it more like, a, is it more like, I don't want to say drum circle, it's not the word I want to say, but like that. The way it's structured is like multiple percussionists. He's leading, and people yeah. easily drop well, in. Well, he, he has a full band as well. You know, he has drums, but he also has guitars and uh, horns and stuff. So, I mean, I, I assume that what he'll be doing is trying to get these people on board with his songs, and there might be some extended percussion stuff. But I mean, you know, he makes percussion instruments out of like PVC pipe and plays it with ping pong paddles and stuff like that. You know, like anything, anything you can do to get yeah. some. Yeah, that's fucking cool. That's super. Yeah. And yeah, it's putting putting the kids on and giving an opportunity to see like this is what it looks like at a big level. And, like, yeah, you can you can be part of that. And there's an amazing guitar player uh, out of DC called John Lee, who um, plays with Ciro Baptista every time he comes to town. And it's awesome. It's it's. I'm amazed that I know somebody who plays with that guy. <laughs> yeah. How do you know John? How did that? Um, he, well, through circles of playing, but he subbed with Funk Arc. I think that's how I first met him. He subbed um, when one of the guitar players in Funk Arc wasn't able to make it on some show. Sure. And uh, that's how I got to know him. But he also plays in another group with a good friend of mine, drummer Nate Graham, and the old bass player from Funk Arc, 
Mark Blackwood in a group called Lee Blackwood and Graham. So it's all their last name. Uh, I saw that you guys were do, they did a show at Gypsy Sally's yeah. with, with um, Three Men Soul Machine as, yeah. a, as a lead in. Yeah, we played yeah. we played like a, a night called the Trio of Trios, and we did uh, Lee Blackwood, Graham, Three Men Soul Machine, and Anthony Pirog's uh, trio, which was a really fun night. Yeah, that sounds uh, sounds cool. Yeah, we I, I've never met. I mean, I'm not I'm not a part of the scene. I have a lot of friends who are musicians. I'm I played guitar for a long time, but never really done anything. Mm-hmm. I met some people that I regard as like talented people, but they still feel like they're few and far between. So I like, <laughs> I like hearing when there's somebody very good from this area. Oh my gosh, playing yeah. guitar like that's good to and know. John, John Lee, he just put out a new record. Uh, some of the guys that played with Funk Arc towards the end of Funk Arc were a bit were on it and. Matt Ripito, who heads up the Harry Bells, another group I play with, he... That's a Harry Belafonte tribute band that's... uh... Yep. funny but awesome <laughs> you guys sound like you're killing it so. horns and percussion tribute to harry belafonte we, we also did three tunes with vocals um and put those out but uh and we also recorded a an album of um holiday themed arrangements <laughs> <laughs> so it's not always harry harry belafonte tunes but we that that was kind of a launching pad for that band. Right, right. um and I'm, I'm very lucky to be playing with those guys they're an amazing amazing bunch of musicians like some of the best players on their instruments i've ever come across so then if you if you had to describe for yourself like kind of what you feel your creative contribution is or what your aims are artistically like what could you do that like what do you think you're doing right now with well i mean as a musician i feel like i'm a drummer for the most part like i i play drums with three-man soul machine that's kind of like the flagship group for Grow Room Productions, I would say. I mean, we're out there playing as much as we possibly can, you know, we're playing six, seven times a month, you know. Yeah, so I met John Lee on a subbing when he was subbing for a funk art gig, and I actually met the leader, the co-leader, I should say, but he, it was his brainchild, Frank Mitchell of um, Three Man Soul Machine, on a funk art gig as well when he subbed in our horn section on a on a gig in Ithaca, New York, and we had the whole ride up to chat, and uh, you know he he was playing with Thievery Corporation a lot at that time. And um, he was a session musician and everything, and he's just he's 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 a, he's a great guy. He's got a lot of stories. <laughs> he's he lived in New Orleans and he grew up here. He was in the Navy, but uh, he has a lot of a lot of stories to tell. And on on Three Man Soul Machine gigs, I just sometimes I just let him talk. Just love to listen to what he says. <laughs> And um, just a journey, one of those journeymen dudes just has oh, a lot of absolutely. deep history. He, he's he's toured with a lot of a lot of acts, the Almighty Senators, um, Thiefer Corporation for ten years. Um, oh wow! Yeah, played on a lot of their most famous cuts. 
it's funny when we're playing at a spot and like they'll have music on on the on um you know whatever the music they're playing over over their loudspeakers or whatever almost every time a cut that he's played on will come on because he's you know if they're playing off a of thievery corporation or four knocks five or like it's just the, the the ambient music to get you to the set yeah start and just hit shit. <laughs> he's like, well it's more of the same yeah <laughs> it's like there's my solo again it's like great and then through grow through grow room productions i'm trying to basically give a voice to a lot of other genre less i don't know like i don't know a lot of a lot of stuff i guess you know if you want to define it you know it could be defined as you know like like um slanginero ranguez <laughs> Steve stuff is on, has very indie rock vibe to it. You know, Dara Z has a trip hop sort of feel to it, but I feel there's also like a, like a more of like a soul end to it, you know, and funky stuff and forest fire is very punk. Oriented, but we also can go off and do some, some more avant-garde stuff, you know, and like, um, and then Igloo 2 kind of merges electronic and analog elements to make something completely its own, I feel. So I'm trying to, trying to give a voice to these other sort of, um, musical elements that may not you know you may not be so easily recognizable you know it's not just like a pop song you know right, so is that it's fair to say like that's kind of your target with the grow room productions label is like you've been maybe collecting these people you find that the music's interesting and maybe a little bit different within their own genre but still maybe a little bit harder to find square, squarely within that genre and then putting them on and trying to let them do what they do absolutely because, yeah. I mean Three Man Soul Machine is very like soul jazz you know like organ trio very like 60s or whatever sounding <laughs> I just feel like it's just good music and I feel like good music is timeless you know you don't really need to say this is a 60s band, sounding band right. or like an homage kind of band it's like you know and because when I when I DJ I play a lot of different kinds of music I try to incorporate that into the label as well so um, I try not to just like stick to one thing or another and I mean I tend to play a lot of stuff from that's older like older music just because that's I feel like where my Nina Simone mixes and stuff yeah, I saw yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I feel like that's just where my taste skews you know <laughs> kind of like older melody based music and stuff that that may um, is making more of a comeback I feel like these days I don't know a lot of your stuff Again, you have a you're pretty eclectic in the the amount of things you're involved in and, and how wide the genre uh, the wide category of genres it, it spans. How, but I noticed that a lot of it has that kind of like 
groove-driven, Afro-Cuban jazz center to it for sure. And like, I'm wondering where you're from Hyattsville. Like, mm-hmm. where, where did that come from? You know, how did that become yeah, so cent- good, central to you? That's a good question. Um, um, well, I started playing drums, like playing along with um, tapes and CDs that I had of not so wide of genres. I was very into like rock music when I came up. Like I, I loved the Jimi Hendrix experience. That was like my first love musically, I would say. But I, I started off on trumpet. So when I started on trumpet, my the first uh, CDs my dad got me when I said I wanted to start trumpet. He got me Miles Davis on the on the corner, <laughs> which is like definitely one of more of his crazier albums. Avant garde, yeah, not, not tractable, and yeah. no. But I mean, it's it's that's the funny thing about on the corner. I would say is that like it's so groovy like there's so much going on in there but it's all based on just like you know a 4-4 groove and they're playing their asses off on top of it you know and he got me a Mel Torme CD as well (laughs) (laughs) which I don't know why he thought that would be good for trumpet but um, or even a good counterpoint to maybe I I don't know but he, you know, like you think some people, you know, trumpet. Okay, I think you think Miles Davis for sure. But then you'd probably go to like kind of blue or like something a little more like traditionally yeah, understood, roundabout midnight yeah. or something, something where he's like, you know, kind of playing and it's jazz. But right. no, on the corner is like this funky, funky, funky <laughs> record. So I mean, I don't know if that like at first when I listened to it, I was like, this is crazy, you know, and like I don't know if it immediately happened, but in, right, yeah. but that has become one of my favorite records, you know, that I always like to go back and listen to. So I don't know if that's because of that, and you know, along the way, I, I definitely learned a lot more about Miles Davis and delved much deeper into his music and all the people that he played with and employed and all that stuff. So, um, but. I would say playing along to Jimi Hendrix records on drums. When I first started playing drums, I would, I would play to Jimi Hendrix records, and I would play to Nirvana, and I'd play to Soundgarden, especially their okay. their Down on the Upside record. And I just like I loved playing that the the music. I would crank it up and I would play. And then so around the same time that started, I I started with a punk band. So I'd play drums in this punk band. And that was when I was talking about we'd go play at Joe's Movement Emporium. And so you'd be like, like 15, 16 or so in this time frame? Yeah, like, I'd say yeah. 14, 15, 16, gotcha. something like that. Because we started it, we started the band, I think, my in ninth grade, in beginning of high school. Um, but I picked up drums like eighth grade, I think. So trumpet was like fifth, sixth grade, and I played that all the way through high school. But um, I never really got that good. I wasn't really. Like, Were you into it? Like, did you pick I, it? I was, but I never took private lessons, so okay. I never really it's got. It's a technical instrument. Yeah. you can't just like yeah. listen to an album. <laughs> like, I got this. <laughs> Unless you're like extremely musically talented, right. that you can just pick up the trumpet and play it, and you can go back to it and play it too. Because if you don't play the trumpet for, you know, three days, if you try to go back to it and play, you, and you yeah, your yeah. aperture is all fucked up and you can't That's do like, anything. The analogy would be like if guitars were made out of cement and you need to have like <laughs> really strong lats just to pick them up, right. like if you don't have those lats, you're, just, you're not playing the guitar. Right. It's not. So, I mean, after, you know, I, I had played and I hadn't played trumpet for a while, me and my friend Alan Prunier, who played 
guitar. He was kind of teaching himself some piano. And we would play, and I'd pick up my trumpet, and we'd play, like, standards and stuff out of a fake book, you know. Cool. And I couldn't, I couldn't play for more than an hour at a time, you know. Before you were dead. Yeah, before yeah. I couldn't make a sound on the instrument. So that's why I liked drums, I think, because you can always make a sound on the instrument, no matter how <laughs> tired you are. Um, and, you know, I've played lots of marathon gigs on drums as well, and, like, you know. But I also picked up guitar somewhere in there, and I started teaching myself some piano, and harmonica as well so so you, you definitely had a natural lean towards you love music obviously yeah. and a natural lean yeah. towards it because you like I, I took up guitar I think I had piano lessons and I was weirded out when I was a kid because she used to put her hands on my hands my hands were <laughs> dead and cold quit that I'm a drum teacher I didn't like him quit that and then I had guitar and that stuck but I never had an inkling to like now I want to learn six other instruments. I never once yeah. was my... But yeah. for you, that's more natural, yeah. it seems like. Well, yeah, with trumpet, starting on trumpet, and then that taught me how to read music, which is, I think, extremely important. Valuable skill, yeah. yeah. And then, so that made me want to delve deeper into music. So when I was going to PG Community College, I wanted to take music theory, you know. So I, I took music theory, and I, I had a good friend that's still my friend and partner in Igloo too. We took uh, music theory together. So you're both going into PG community at the same time? Yeah, back in like 10 years ago or something. <laughs> so, to, so to scale to scale back a little bit, so you, when does Grow Room become an idea or a thing for you then? Was it was it something you started kicking around when you were like 15, 16, gigging at absolutely the Emporium not. or was it no, later? No, absolutely not. It was after um, my a couple friends of mine... Um, I guess it would probably be around like 2003, 2004. Um, we got a house together in College Park. And there was a lot of friends of mine that I was like four guys, I, I want to say, all musicians. Shout out to Atomic Music in College oh, yeah. Park right oh, now. Yeah. But yeah. They still supply us with a lot of instruments and sticks and that place is awesome. cables and all that stuff. Love those guys. Um, but they, uh, we got a house together, and that's when it kind of like started formulating that we wanted to do something more than just like being a band, you know? Because like being in a band is fine, but then you got to find places to play. You got to, if you want to record music, got to figure out where to record it. If you um, then record the music somewhere if you pay for it you got to figure out how to pay for it and then you got to figure out okay well do we want to disseminate this we got to figure out how to do that i mean this was before itunes this was before before uh, a macbook pro with GarageBand. yeah (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, this was like right around that time i would say 2003 2004 there was starting to be like so that's exactly what we decided to do we decided to make a, a studio so we decided to build a studio in this house, which is one of the reasons why we got the house, because it had a big master bedroom. And we would just, like, all of us would live in the smaller bedrooms, and then we'd, we'd put the master bedroom into the studio. We'd make it the studio. And um, we did that. We, we brought in a couple bands and did some sessions, you know, for money, you know, try to get people to pay us to record them. Uh, one of the guys who was very instrumental in all this was Kyle Unaver, who is um, also one of the, one of my best friends, um, has been since I was in high school. But um, he went to Full Sail in Florida, which is like a hyper-intensive recording engineering school. Oh, cool! And so he went to the he went there and learned as much as he could in thirteen months or whatever it is about recording engineering. 
So when he came back, he was like, look, this is what you got to do. This, you got to get this stuff. Let's do this. Not really under the best circumstances. We got some money because uh, our other good friend had a, been my friend since back in the Joe's Movement Emporium days. We were in rival bands together. <laughs> but, uh, yeah. uh, um, Dan Reno, he's, his father had recently died very kind of in a freak accident and he had a, he had gotten some money from that I, I had been in a car accident Ooh. so I had gotten some money from that Ooh. yeah I broke my femur and stuff so like we, we just put we just took that money and put it into recording uh, equipment that's cool so. <laughs> wrangle that chaos man Make yeah it work. exactly yeah. that was kind of like the, uh, that's how Grow Room Productions got its startup capital you know <laughs> So we, we, put, we put basically all of that into a recording studio because we knew that we wanted to, like from being in my punk bands back in the day, um, Joe playing Joe's Moon Emporium, we recorded a couple albums, you know, and we paid other people to put our albums together. We paid to have them printed, you know, that kind of stuff. You got through the process. Yeah. So, yeah. And it's... Like to get CDs printed at that point at that time was like thousand oh, a really? thousand dollars. It wasn't yeah. easy to do. To be in the studio, we recorded talk about atomic music. We recorded our first album with that band Freeload at Phase Studios, which was in the back of Atomic Music and the College Park days. So they had their own, they had a recording studio back yeah. then. Yeah. Oh wow. So we recorded there. That was money. I don't know where we came up with that money. I don't know. <laughs> we, I don't know. I know we weren't making that much money playing those shows at Joe's Movement Emporium and at St. Jerome's Church and stuff like that. But uh, somehow we came up with some money and we we, um, we recorded those albums while we were in high school. But we knew we didn't want to do that. And we knew CD duplication was expensive and all this stuff. So we knew that we wanted to record our own music. And we thought, hey, if we have a recording studio, we could charge people to pay we could charge people to record in our studio and as well. pay and put your own stuff out at the right. same time. Yeah. So we recorded some stuff. Um, and right around that time was when our first flagship band, the mighty herd was starting at first. It was just called the herd H E A R D. And, uh, a chef that I had worked with was, an, is an, is still an amazing, talented performer and, I had stayed in touch with him and we knew that we would always do music together and he brought some people into the fold and I brought some people into the fold and we got together and we formed this band called the mighty herd and it was an homage to the 70s funk bands the big bands we had three horns you know but we also put a spin on it for modern times we had a like a hip-hop element as well and we brought in some girl singers, and we and that band went for like six years. It was, oh, wow. it was a great, great band. And we got in, we, we broke into DC a little bit, played Rock and Roll Hotel a few times, DC cool. Nine, cool. you know, and uh, H Street Festival, stuff like that. Uh, we played Artscape in Baltimore. Oh, yeah, that's fine. Yeah. yeah, it was great. It was, it was a really great band. We played the Miami Music Festival, went through a couple different incarnations of the band, you know. Um, and I can't talk about that band without talking about Abdullah Thompson, which is one of our really good friends who passed away uh, a couple months ago now. And he was just an incredible driving force behind the band and behind just like all of our lives in general. He was just an amazing person. And um, basically, we recorded an album in the Grow Room studio. Um, 
that has not come out yet. Awesome. <laughs> we recorded it in about 2010, I want to say. <laughs> and still refining, yes, making it perfect. I'm still, that's what I don't want. I don't want it to be perfect. I want it to just be out. So we're going to put some of that out soon, especially now that Dula is gone. I want to make sure that his music gets out there. And um, he wrote about half the songs on the album, so I want to make sure that some of that stuff is out. Do you have a, a name for the working name for the project yet? It's well, we always thought the album would be just would be called Word, because that's what we always used to say. We just used to say Word all the time. <laughs> when everybody would come and be like, Word, 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 <laughs> all right, Word. So, and a lot of times we said, What's the word? The herd is the word. So, you know, that's kind of how it came about. That's cool. Yeah. yeah. So I, uh, initially, I just want to put out a single. I want to put out the. I'm working on mixing that stuff now, and hopefully that'll be out 2018. Uh, the Mighty Herd, and you know, when we played, when we were rocking shows, it was a great time. Big band, ten piece band, you know. Oh wow! Yeah, so that was kind of like my primer. I played with them, and and we played a couple gigs with the Funk Arc. And that's how Will Rast from Funk Arc. So you sat in with Funk Arc a few times. Well, I, I didn't sit in with them. It was just like the Mighty Herd played on the same uh, bill. Same. Gotcha, yeah, gotcha, yeah. gotcha. So then that's how Will Rast from Funk Arc knew about me and, and I guess my drumming as well. And he knew that I was funky enough to play with the Funk Arc. <laughs> so when Jeff Franca got the call, got the call to go up to the big leagues with Thievery Corporation and leave Funk Arc, um, Will gave me a call. And they had already a tour planned and all this stuff, touring off of their first album that I was not on. But um, we did the tour, and then we recorded the High Noon album, which is the one punk rock album that I am on. And uh, I was with that band with, for almost six years, too. So that playing with the, with the Mighty Herd was like big band, 10-piece, three horns, you know, two singers. The Funk Arc, big band, eight-piece, Three, three horns, just not two singers. Natural, so. <laughs> natural kind of plug-in for you. Yeah. Natural fit in. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. And so I, I, I'd always, you know, like, I'd always loved from that On the Corner album, getting into James Brown, getting into all that funky stuff. And when I heard Sharon Jones and the Dap Kings, I mean, I knew that I had a place. We, like, this funk music it Has a today, space to be consumed, yeah. Right, yeah. right. Could be able to be around today, you know? And, like, it, 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 I felt very validated when I heard Sharon Jones and the Dap Kings doing what they were doing. And all of, all of their offshoot pro- projects that I didn't even know were their projects, you know? Like the Manhattan Street Band and Doc Therese and Antibalas, to an extent, is an offshoot of their band. And... Um, the Budos band and all those bands. Like I just, you know, every time I, I heard what they were doing, I was validated in what the mighty herd was doing and in the direction of just funky music in general. I thought that <laughs> we could, you know, really make a go of it. So, well, yeah, you had the momentum, all those people around you, you're all aiming in one direction and right. just good vibes and yeah. self-supporting upward spiral of positivity. And I actually went so far as to call Neil Sugarman of Daptone Records and the Dap Kings to see if I could talk to him. And I actually did. I got through to him and talked to him on the phone when the Mighty Herd was kind of like, because we always like kind of had this ebb and flow with the Mighty Herd of like members leaving or staying with us for a certain amount of time and like, you know, just like the, how it is with any band, sure. you know, like you, you go through the, the, the peaks and valleys. 
And I actually got to talk to him. I had a great conversation with him. I, he probably doesn't remember it, but, uh, <laughs> but, um, he, he was like, yeah, you know, Sharon and, and our band, we, we sweated it out for 10 years, just playing on the road in a van, you know, just like 10 of us in the van, including Sharon, just like going from place to place, playing, playing Monday night gigs and stuff, you know, it was just like, that's what you do. If you want to get anywhere, that's what you do with, with music. So it's interesting that I'm still doing it. <laughs> so is that, I mean, is, so I'm still trying to figure out exactly how the label, so the label was created by a group of people, but at this point in time, it's kind of a freestanding entity that maybe you are solely responsible for, or is it? Yeah, so that's what happened, basically. It started as this group of people in this one house. We moved to another house, and we built a bigger recording studio, and we got a couple more people involved. And that's when we decided to do the productions aspect of it. We, we came up with Grow Room as kind of like the name of the recording studio. We were like, this is the Grow Room, and... It was always about room to grow. You may have any inferences as you would like right, right, to right. Uh, pot smoking or whatever, but which we did our fair share of as well. But it was like that was always the idea behind it was that it was room to grow. We would give a room in order to grow, and that's how the studio became known as the Grow Room. And when we when we decided when we moved to this other house that was a little bigger, we decided to do the productions aspect of it and kind of try to host parties basically and in this bigger house we had a big backyard and my buddy who now works on film shoots he was working at a supply house he had all these light access to all these lighting stuff we would bring in the lighting we had people who worked at bars they would bring kegs you know we'd have people that cooked crowdsourcing food yeah exactly exactly we would cook food we'd sell it we had artists that would show their paintings and other art that they did um, on on our property, and this was in Adelphi, Maryland, um, Riggs Road, and we would um, we would just throw big parties and kind of like create like experiences or productions, you know what I mean? So that was, and and we'd always have a musical element as well, like at least one Grogan Productions act would play, and then we'd get another act from the. Like we had a few from Baltimore. We had a couple go-go bands come and play from DC. We had um, yeah a couple rock bands like come and play like kind of like uh, more progressive sounding stuff. We always wanted to keep it kind of edgy, and that was like we we threw I think five of those on that property over the span of like three or four years, and this was kind of before we got involved with Facebook, I think too, like before Facebook was even really like a platform to promote your arts and whatever you wanted to do. I mean, Growing Productions never had a MySpace page, I don't think, <laughs> but maybe we did. I don't remember, but uh, I remember all the other bands did, you know, the Mighty Herd, Savage Badger Badges. We always had a uh, MySpace page and all that. But this was like before you could disseminate information so easily on Facebook so we just like kind of had to do word of mouth and people would come to the parties it'd be 10 bucks or something and just like get a cup and drink and we'd set up couches in the in the woods you know and like stuff like that and this actually helps you feel like this actually helped you kind of like solidify grow room as a thing in people's minds and for you too got you some money to make forward progress or was it also just like eh, it's a big fucking party and 
It was a little bit of both. I mean, for sure. This is like, that's what we wanted to do. You know, we wanted to showcase our talent and our friends' talent and get other people involved and as well as just have a good time, have people just have a good time because when people have a good time, they they just remember it. You know, they remember having a good time. That's a good point. And whether or not they knew it was Grow Room Productions putting it on, I mean, we called it the Grow Room Get Down, so hopefully they knew what was going on. Um, we might have made some fans that still stick with us. Um, so, anyways, after the after we moved out of that house, um, the grow room get down was on a hiatus for a long period of time, and then we picked it up again at Songbird, actually. Um, so that had to be the past couple of years. Right? Yeah, a little bit over a year ago, we did our first get down, and we did like we did one every other month for almost a year. So we did like five of them, I think, at Songbird. And it was getting, yeah, because we did, uh, it was getting about to be the time when um, Miley the fifth, Milo, was going to be born. And I was like, I know I can't be putting all this time into doing this right now. It was, right. It's a lot of work to put on a just one show. And then we get, you know, a show every other month and get other people involved. And we always had a, an artist, somebody doing some, some kind of art live. You know, we have painting. Somebody's so you're painting. really trying to recreate that. Yeah. And they let you do that in that space? They yeah. Let you they let say how you wanted to do it? Mm-hmm. Uh, in the basement of Songbird, in the venue. And um, uh, it just got to be a lot of work. And I knew come, with Milo coming, I wasn't going to be able to do that much work on it. Sustainable, so yeah. I was like, look, we'll, go, we'll put this on another hiatus. But I was happy that we were able to do it in, in a venue for that amount of time. Those few, those, you know, five times or whatever it was. So you, so this is definitely like not, uh, like clearly Gurum is the production. Let me start over. Gurum Productions is still like an active entity. You have no plans of shuttering it. You're just like, I'm going to keep this going as long as I keep it going. Absolutely. But you're not necessarily committed to constantly producing absolutely new material. It's like absolutely. if things that make sense come my way, this right. exists as a platform. Well, as far as as far as the productions aspect of like putting on these events, that's how I feel about it. Uh, when it comes to putting out recorded music, I want to continually be doing that because I have so much stuff that's already recorded and so much stuff that is to be recorded sure. um, that I feel like as a record label, I mean, just on the stuff that we have recorded now, I could be putting out stuff for the next Good. five, ten years. I mean, Good. you know, last year, 2000. No, 2016 is when we made a really big push. We put out five releases in 2016. Um, 2017, I think it was two or three. And so 2018, we've already had one release. Two. No, I'm sorry. We've had three releases already. Um, I got to make sure the Forest Fire album... I think the Forest Fire came out at the end of 2017. So, so far in 2018, we have two releases so far. And um, we got a bunch of stuff coming up like a bunch of stuff that's already recorded in the mixing stages and then going off to mastering. So, and, uh, I'm working on another very special thing that is kind of like a passion project for me that, um, is going to be involving a lot of Grover Max and a lot of acts in the city as well. Um, loosely related to grow room productions is, um, I'm putting together a full album cover of the album Cure for Pain by the band Morphine, which I'm not sure if you're familiar with, but they were a great band out of the 90s. Uh, Somebody actually at a 2 a.m. 
3 a.m. post-party table-side conversation was trying to bring that album up. I had to tell him I had no idea what that album was. But this is Great. the second time I've heard it mentioned. That's now, really so good that's, to hear. It's definitely yeah. like kind of like a cult status album, although it was huge. It was really big when it came out. 1992, I think, is when it came out. Sure. And, I mean, the band Morphine had been doing stuff before then. They put out an album before then, but the, this album was really their big album. They put out a few albums after that, and then their bass player died suddenly. Um, who was one of the guys who wrote all the songs too? So it was the end of the end of the band, yeah. Yeah, so. but the the drummer and the saxophonist had since picked up the band, and they called Vapors of Morphine, mm. and they've been playing Morphine tunes and then writing some new stuff. And they just did a 25 year uh, anniversary for Cure for Pain. I believe it was last year, so yeah, it'd be '92 that it came out. Um, and they're they're out of the Massachusetts area. So, so this is your tribute project, gathering the resources you had to have people put yeah. together a series of covers. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. So I'm trying to basically reimagine the entire album in uh, kind of the vein of, um, I don't know if you are familiar with Beck's Record Club. I know a little bit of Beck's uh, catalog, but no. I'd so yeah, this it's not like a like a, he just released it on YouTube or whatever, like just a, a website as a download free free release yeah and it's like he would just get some people together and they would cover an entire album so they did um yeah it's awesome members of sonic youth and some other people that are involved with beck and his random people um they did velvet underground and nico they did that album and they did um uh the name is escaping me in excess they did an excess album <laughs> which is amazing they did an amazing job with that uh and they did this album by alexander skip spence the band called or i had no idea who this guy was before i heard the beck album and both are amazing and then they did uh a yanni album <laughs> an entire yanni album yes did they make it good they make it they made, made it amazing it's, <laughs> it's so good oh and they also did leonard cohen um his first album. Awesome. So, uh, like that's kind of like the vein of that and, um, other album, other full cover albums that like the band Mojo or the, the Mojo magazine comes out with. They, they do a lot of stuff like that where they get a lot of different artists together and just cover a whole album. They've done like Abbey road, you know, and like the the classic, yeah, yeah, a couple other Beatles albums and stuff and like stuff like that. Spin magazine does this thing where they put together, the album, like a full album cover as well. They did Prince Purple Rain. They did um, uh, Nirvana, uh, Nevermind, like Charles Bradley from the Daptone people yeah, yeah. Has, a, has a song on that. That's very cool. Yeah, yeah. So, so this is your your DC stones. iteration of that. Yeah. And so you're I'm, choosing your target. Yeah, yeah. Basically, like I'm trying to like bring as many people together as I can to put together this album. And it's amazing how many people like know the cure for pain album and the people that don't know it that i tell them about they're instantly into it and i love it it's great so steve was one of the guys who didn't know about it and he's like he picked his song he's gonna do it oh he's covering one yeah that's awesome and then so i mean and then i'm kind of like debuting a couple other acts on this compilation as well so it'll be like this other band that i'm involved with called illusion arc which is my friend Shannon Fratinduano and myself, um, kind of like uh, beach housey vibe, 
like uh, the band Beach House. Um, sure. Yeah, yeah. Or like, um, I don't know, just like ambient kind of stuff, but with a female front of vocals. And um, I'm debuting this other band, Bad Assassins, which I used to play drums with when it was called Luncheon. Uh, it's <laughs> quite a switch. <laughs> quite a switch of names there. Yeah. But they've, I'm very happy that they were able to pick it up without me because I, you know, I don't have time to play with every band that right. I want to play with. Right. Um, and they're they're playing more shows now. And Forest Fire is doing a song. And I got a great band that just did um, the Kennedy Center Millennium Stage Backbeat Underground. Um, they're awesome. Satya runs that band. Um, and he's also part of Astronaut Jones, which has done a remix, a couple of remixes for maybe just one on the Igloo 2 remix Igloo album. That, I saw that one. Yeah. yeah. So, and I played some percussion on their release a little back, a little back. So it's like all kind of like, you know, reciprocal trying to do this. And then I think we're going to start a Kickstarter for the Cure for Pain thing and then just donate everything that we can to a... Um, um, substance abuse charity. That's smart. So, yeah. yeah, it's a cool vibe. Yeah. So you, um, how do you? What do you usually do to vet out the acts you're looking for? Do you have like a philosophy or like a set of rules you're trying to follow? Or? No. So far, I mean, it's just been people like have come to me and they're like, "Man, I really want to do something with my music," and I'm like, "Let me hear it," you know. And then uh, I listen to it. <laughs> more than often than not there i know the person already you know they're like that's how i came to put out dear aziz album i knew her from mutual friends and she's like you know i'm trying to make more of a go of, of me as a performer i've been writing these songs like let me hear them you know and uh i, I liked what she was doing and i felt that not only i liked it but i could add something to it as well you know so i helped put her stuff out and with Steve I didn't have to do anything Sly Engineer Ranguez his stuff was 100% done I don't know why that stuff wasn't out already <laughs> he just had it up on SoundCloud and I was like look man this should be out there so you know we got it on iTunes Spotify Amazon like all that stuff Dope. so and gave it a home on the Grow Room Bandcamp you know so you're and you're working right now more of like a product producer capacity for these acts that come to you, helping them do songwriting, helping them do yeah, yeah. With Dara, yeah, with Dara, I was able to help her, yeah, produce the stuff and tweak some of the songs writing wise. She basically had them completely done, um, but yeah, and then add some elements here and there that that they wanted, and she just released her. Uh, Hip hop EP, which is cool. Her doing doing a couple um, raps, which she honed at the Boundary Stone open mic, which is a cool spot. And then she has since moved to Austin, Texas, um, and hopefully doing well there. I hear from her every now and then, but um, it's a good scene for yeah. I was, she said she was yeah. going to be hitting up open mics there as well, and um, yeah, so. Uh, when people come to me, I just, you know, I just want to hear their music. I don't care, like, what's going on. Another good friend of mine, he's been just doing beats. You know, he's just been putting together beats, sampling stuff, sampling himself. He plays everything. He plays banjo and drums and stuff. Oh, wow. So he's just got a little setup, and he's just been sampling himself and, you know, picking and choosing from stuff and making little beats here and there. 
And he's like, maybe you want to put this out. I'm like, yeah, definitely. Let's put it out. You know? So I'm going to help him get it towards the finish line. We're going to put that out. And a couple other people have come to me, um, because they know that, you know, I put out music and I get it out there, whether or not people listen to it, you know, I don't know, but <laughs> it's out there. <laughs> so what, what are your hopes for the, for the business then? What do you, what would you like to say? What would you like to get out of it? Well, I've been as heavily as I can with my time produce or, um, uh, as heavily, as heavily as I can, I've been pursuing licensing opportunities. So any original music that we have that's not samples or cover songs, right. I've been able to get in a few libraries for that's available for licensing. And I have a couple of relationships with some firms where I actually have people that I talk to on the phone that are actively pushing for some of this stuff to be licensed. So that includes anything from just being the background music at a retail shop. You sure, know? sure, sure. I get it. There's, there's some, some of the stuff is in rotation for that. That doesn't obviously accrue very much, but it's actually more than a, a Spotify play. You sure. Know? So that, that's okay. I'm, I'll take that. And then everything from that to being pushed to use in commercials and TV, TV and media and yeah, commercials and, and movies and stuff like and that. And it gives people the opportunity to have that avenue of income. If Absolutely. That's what they're going so for. that's, that's, that's like where I've been kind of throwing. That's why I really am pushing for more original material. You know, just like I love, I love covering songs. It's one of my favorite things to do, like play other people's songs. But if we, if you write the material, you can you, do that freely. Right. Exactly. Right. You don't have to worry about clearing anything or whatever. So that makes perfect sense. And yeah. then you've got, I mean, you've got a ton of original material because you're on the, the bands on the label. You've got what? You've got Three Man Soul Machine, Harry Bell's uh, Forest Fires on there. You've got your alter ego DJ Honestly, which is yeah. hilarious. And, <laughs> but and, and also one of my favorites of what I listened to. I really liked what you were doing there. Awesome. And then. Uh, yeah, you got a lot. You got a lot going on. Yeah, Igloo Two, I feel like it's one of the more fulfilling things that I that I've been working on with me and my friend Dan Bradley, and we just we come together and we play, and then we kind of sample what we've done and try to make like electronically based stuff out of the analog things that we've done, and then add more instruments on top of it to make these little two and a half to three minute little nuggets. <laughs> So that's cool. Is that different than this? Then I don't, I don't know enough about how the production of like, I don't want to call it EDM, but my vocabulary is running out. Yeah. So call it EDM, but like, well, it's not dance music. I mean, right. it's, it's more like EDM is electronic dance music. Sure. 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 So, um, I wouldn't call it Igloo 2 dance music. It's definitely more of like a chill out sort of thing. And every time I've like tried to have to have to put a genre on it, you know, for the these libraries or whenever you release something, they want you to put a genre on it. Catalog it or categorize yeah. it, yeah. Yeah, I've I've always just picked like electronic and down tempo is the best way to kind of describe that stuff. Um, and a lot of down tempo music, that genre has kind of been defined by sampling. So our and it's very open. You know, it could a, a song could last for six minutes with the same 
two measure sample, you know, but our, our stuff is tighter, you know, it's like two and a half, like I said, two and a half to three minutes and it goes somewhere within that amount of time. It's kind of, it's kind of like a pop song, but, right. <laughs> right. but within the, f- but instrumental constraints of yeah. instrumental down tempo, yeah. down tempo electronic. Or yeah. I like I like the fact that you can play. I like the fact that you can play and sample what you play because like I have a friend who's trying to do something with electronic music, but he's a good bass player and a guitar player, and he's like, there's kind of a clash mm-hmm. between those instruments unless you're doing something like you're doing with it. Yeah, so that's yeah, not the bass so much, but the guitar. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, I find it very very rewarding to be able to like just like play and then take something and be like, that's good enough to sample. You know, like oh, yeah. because when you when you're like I, you know, I've made hip hop beats, and Dan Bradley and I have both like over our years and made just like just making beats for fun and put out a couple things here and there that uh, that have some um, some hip hop elements and are just like uh, always looking for sampling stuff. Always, you know, you're just out there listening to music. Oh, that's something to sample right there, you know. So when you play that yourself, make your own, <laughs> yeah. make your own hooks. That's pretty cool. Yeah. <laughs> Stuff. So I also want to talk to you a little bit about uh, odd provisions. Yeah. Um, I I think it's cool already because I knew about it before knowing about you. It's a, I don't want to call it a boutique grocery store. It's an eclectic grocery store. I think that's what our like uh, Google T- thing the says. The tagline is boutique. It says boutique or specialty grocery store or something like that. But we basically try to stock everything that you would have in a normal grocery store, just not 40 of each one of them. Exactly. Like one or two, you know. We have, you know, except for mustard. We have about about 11 different kinds of mustard. High demand, high demand for mustard for some reason. (laughs) But, yeah, so Odd Provisions is basically the culmination of myself, my wife, and our good friend and business partner, Jess Woods, um, um, years of working in the restaurant industry, and and Jess and Rachel had the uh, opportunity to work under some great uh, front of house people as well that taught them a lot about wine and a lot about food. Um, and Jess was the GM at um, Room Eleven, and Rachel, like you know, we said before, was the brunch manager there and a. Um, a server and Rachel also was a sister manager of this other spot called District Kitchen um, and so they've kind of been putting their experiences all together for some years now and while Jess was working at Room 11 the corner store across the street Arthur's Grocery she noticed was deteriorating not going so well yeah. Yeah. I remember that spot yeah, and so people, it was a great community place. People would go there, you know, to get whatever they needed, from the, and they'd have barbecues outside, and, you know, it, it was a great place for the community. Um, but the people just didn't want to run it anymore. They, they, they had a lot of issues with keeping it running, and the, they had been doing it for 50 years. Wow, yeah. yeah. And so they, they, they were just like, hey, you know, we don't want to do this anymore. That's, and Paul Rupert got involved with putting them in touch with Jess to be able to work out how they would sell the business to us. But, I mean, like I said, we try to have everything that a normal grocery store would have. 
just not 40 of them. It's not. Yeah, all really the important. basics, the eggs, yeah. eggs, milk, cheese, pr- some basic produce, and then yeah. all this stuff. That's yeah. awesome. Man. Yeah. I wish you guys well with that. I hope it uh, accelerates and goes yeah. where you want it to go. And it's also turned into kind of like a community sounding board as well. People can put up their flyers and stuff. And, you know, we get a lot of people, since it's very neighborhood-centric, we get people coming in that, like, hosting things at Bloom Bars. Or, like, people... There's there's a lot of... I didn't think there's really studios in the area, but there's a lot of artists that are in in the area. We have some local art up and stuff like that, too, so... You've been accepted. Yeah, it sounds like it. It's it's coming together. (laughs) So then I have a question here that's a, that I've stolen from another person's work because I thought it was a good question to ask. And it it's uh, the idea is this. Is if DC sponsored a giant art installation downtown where it's a massive billboard and you could put up any one, any like sentence or phrase that you wanted and you knew like everyone's going to see it, uh, you have something you might want to put up there? Like, I don't know, it's an intense question. But <laughs> something it's also, not self-promoting. Yeah, <laughs> it could. It's, it's, it's a reflection of you, man. Yeah, so that's yeah, right, yeah. That. If that's where my head goes first. No, I mean, I don't know. I mean, I think that if 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 you could do that, I think that something that connects with people is, um, I don't know, part of my like recurring thing like a like a hashtag that I like to use a lot is called funk for the soul and I think that would be nice to just put up like you know like something that is like to me funk is dirty is messy you know funk is not clean if you if it's too clean it's not funky you know what I mean like some of that stuff from the from the eighties sessions where they tried to make everything super tight and sound really 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 good. Yeah, and they made like electric drum samples everywhere. Yeah, sense drums everywhere, yeah. and like yeah, stuff like that. Or even like some of the, the really funky bands that were were really funky back in the day, like Fatback Band and stuff like that. Some of their some of their glossy stuff. Some of their glossy stuff has lost a lot of the funk. Um, I think that funk is is dirty it's it's messy and i think you need that as part of a good soul you know what i mean like i think that in order to understand where people are coming from to have empathy to have to be able to be humble to be able to be thankful to be able to um just be a happy giving person, you know, and not a self-centered asshole you need to have some kind of funk in your soul. You know what I mean? You need to be able to know both sides of the equation, you know? So that might be nice to put up <laughs> and people can, can take it however they want as well. Funk for the soul could mean many things to many different people, but to me, that's what it means. Basically the message is check out your local music scene, man. <laughs> Basically, see, yeah, see I mean it's everywhere. On. And and be appreciative of your local music scene, you know, because it doesn't happen in every city. You you may think it does. You may think, oh yeah, you know, every city has this great thriving local music scene. But if the people don't get behind it, there's no scene. The musicians might be there, but if there's no reason for them to come out of their their shed and come play, then you know, we need your appreciation. Your just anything. You're just. I. I. I always. I always really appreciate it when anybody. If. If. If we have a tip jar out and they come up and they put something in the tip jar, that's great. If they. But a lot of times people come up and they just say thank you, and that's almost 
just as fulfilling, you know? Especially on the paying gigs. <laughs> <laughs> and that's a wrap for the second episode. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Uh, if you're a musician and you want to connect with Lee, you can reach him at grapevine at growroom.org. Also, I encourage everyone to check out the music on his label at growroom.bandcamp.com. You can hear some of the stuff that he's been producing and get some an earful of some good local musicians. Also, you can subscribe to his YouTube channel, DC Music Docs, which is a project he's been working on. Um, it's a series of short documentaries following local DMV musicians and also content surrounding the work of musicians from the DMV. Um, if you want to catch up with Lee, uh, Three Man Soul Machine will have an upcoming show at the Columbia Pike Blues Festival Saturday, June 16th, 2018. And yeah, so that's a wrap for this one. Thanks everyone for listening. I'm Alex Covell, and this is Culture on Top. Please rate us on iTunes and have a very nice day.